I'm Derek. <laughs> I'm a no fun Nancy. I think no nonsense the, Nancy. <laughs> I think the word you're looking for is profession, consummate professional. Uh huh. So you're done insulting me? Can we get on with this? <laughs> you could have gotten on with it like. So welcome to episode two of Stuck in the Middle with You, a podcast where two guys take a look at a critically divisive film and try to see which side of the consensus they fall on. My name is Derek Gane. My co-host, my brother, my friend is Juan Barkeen. Say hi, Juan. Hi. I actually really wanted to add a woohoo when you said episode two because it would have been you to who, but I feel a little... I feel a little excluded out of this intro <laughs> for not being so able to do that. So you decided to sabotage it with a joke. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, what we do on this podcast is we take a look at a movie with a 50% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and see whether or not we like it. Because a 50% score means half of the critics polled liked it, half of the critics polled did not. And while that means that it is technically rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, we like to think that it's a more interesting number to look at than the 60% that makes it a closer to rotten or fresh rating on RT. Or 0% or 100% for that matter. Yeah, because what's what's the point in looking at movies that everybody loves or hates? It's more fun to look at the stuff that is critically divisive. So last week, we watched Ridley Scott's Legend and decided that we, that we both liked it. This week, it was Juan's pick. What did you pick, Juan? What did we watch this week? Due to the fact that it was thematically, or, or rather, sort of relevant uh, to today's film world because of a recent remake of the film... Or of the musical as a whole, which gives you a huge clue to what it is if you didn't hear last week's episode. Or like the title of the podcast. Yes. (laughs) What? Because I titled these. Oh, yeah. Or look at the title (laughs) of the podcast. Whatever. Like, (laughs) we are doing 1982's Annie, directed by John Huston. And did you like this movie at all, Juan? I mean, I like Annie as a musical. I don't love it that much. I, I, like, I don't think it's a very great musical by any means necessary. There's a lot of songs that should be cut and updated, and maybe not necessarily by Sia as the 2014 edition did. But it's not like a terrible musical film adaptation. It's got its, it's got its ups, it's got its downs. Well, it, it does have a 50% rating on Run Tomatoes, but we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. What is yes, this... What is this movie about? What the hell is Annie all about? It's about little orphan Annie. Yes. For those who may not know, this version of the film is an adaptation of a 70s musical, which in itself is an adaptation of an early 20th century comic by one Harold Gray. At the risk of getting ahead of ourselves, I want to point out that Harold Gray, the uh, creator of Little Orphan Annie, was a uh, virulently anti-union, anti-New Deal, right-wing nut job and surprisingly enough some of it seeps into sort of the sweetness and uh good nature of of the musical it really does and like i didn't expect it to considering 2014's annie didn't really have a lot of politics to it whatsoever and then looking back at this i was kind of surprised at just how politically charged i guess is the nicest way to put it at the moment (laughs) 
It kind of has a, a strange, unpleasant young Republican streak to it. Like we're getting way. Ahead. We should probably say what the movie is actually about. First yeah, we off. should. Okay. Essentially, it's about a young redheaded girl in an orphanage who is desperate to find her parents and consistently runs off from the orphanage, which is run by a horrible, horrible woman named Miss Hannigan. Played and, by Carol um, Burnett. Yes, played by Carol Burnett to go find her parents off in the streets, which she was left. They left her with a locket on the front step of the orphanage. And um, I guess Derek can explain the other half of this movie. All right. Basically, as a publicity stunt, a a Republican billionaire industrialist wants to have an orphan as a publicity stunt to like show people that he has a heart, that he's not just concerned with the American war machine. Because uh, Oliver Warbucks, played by uh, Albert Finney, is like the creator of the comic, a virulently anti-New Deal character. Who has his heart warmed by the young and charming Annie. Oh my god. And basically, <laughs> the movie isn't really a, the, the movie isn't really about Annie finding a family. It's about it almost feels like oh god, it's, it almost feels like a propaganda piece. Because this because, <laughs> no, hear me out. This movie is set in the early 30s during the single biggest economic downturn in American history up until the one you find yourself in right now, dear Juan. Yeah. Uh, Miss Hannigan is a jazz age alcoholic for a reason. She represents like, like the jazz age failed. I mean, she is like how post World War One American prosperity has soured. You know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed this. I, it was it was kind of downplayed in this version of the film, but in the 1999 Rob Marshall version of this, which was a made for TV uh, adaptation of the musical, it is made clear that both Miss Hannigan and her brother Rooster, played by Tim Curry in this film, and Alan Cumming in the 99 Rob Marshall, ver- uh, Rob so Marshall version, are Irish. This comic, maybe not the musical, because I haven't actually seen the musical, but the comic that it's based on is virulently anti-Irish. Of course it is. So yeah, it just feels like this weird propaganda piece where you've got this industrialist billionaire adopting a child, and he kind of like de- develops like emotions and a conscience by accident. He and- does. <laughs> or by at least like weird osmosis from other people who surround him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at one point in the film, Rooster Hannigan, Miss Hannigan, and Rooster Hannigan's girlfriend, played by the lovely Bernadette Peters, played by Bernadette Peters, scheme to rob this all-American self-made man out of fifty thousand dollars. And well, that's that's just sort of another. That's part of the whole propaganda thing. And I know I'm really beating this into the ground, but people have got to know. They gotta know. The third act is basically um, a giant like a, chase sequence. A giant chase scene. It's the only time in the movie where you can tell that the movie is directed by John Huston. True. I mean, like, but that's the thing. I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing because I do think there are a lot of really nice visual flourishes to Annie that wouldn't have been done by someone who wasn't as experienced and talented in film on a general level, not necessarily just in musicals, as this John was, Huston was. This was John Huston's first and only musical in his career. Yes, it was. But my point is, at the, in the third act, in, uh, Annie gets kidnapped by the Hannigans, and Oliver Warbucks goes and, and tells his staff, you, call the head of the FBI. You, call the NYPD. <laughs> He's got everyone in his back pocket, and how can you not? Yeah, it's just like sort of a plot convenience, but – and he asks 
to, he has to talk to William Randolph Hearst of all people. Come on. It's this really like golden scene, by the way, where it's just like the back of his head and like the entirety of his mansion. And he just calls out each person by name in his home to ask them to call somebody else. And they pop up from each and every single section of his house, like one by one. And it's just this really nice one shot and really amusing to me personally. <laughs> I thought it was actually kind of emblematic of what John Huston didn't quite get down in the film. Really? A few times in the film, he, he makes some very strange decisions regarding how to frame his dancers, especially in the middle of a dance sequence. A lot of the times it's just like sort of a frontal, just a regular medium shot and people are performing. A couple of times in the film, though, he'll have someone in the foreground doing a thing, but then he'll have someone performing and doing like pirouettes and backflips and shit in the background and i'm like no you got to focus on that that's where the cool things are at i mean you don't necessarily have to focus on that especially not if they're background dancers which they like tended to be but i understand the frustration that comes with that kind of framing but he does do a lot of really like there's a lot of really big sprawling numbers that you don't get to see in a lot of musicals past the 60s. Like, let's go to the movies, which I know Derek has some qualms with. I got some in qualms part. With it. I think the movie's at its best when it embraces the musical form, not just necessarily in that and let's go to the movies, which is like a very, very nicely staged Busby Berkeley type number. And like the dances are fantastic, especially when it comes to the actress who plays Grace, which I believe is um Anne Reinking. Yeah. Anne Reinking, yes. But she, well, she is fabulous in the movie. Frankly, she's my favorite actress outside of Carol Burnett in that movie. Carol Burnett makes this movie as the sort of jazz age alcoholic. She really does. Had it not been for her, even even Tim Curry and Bernadette Peters, who I typically love, they yeah, they kind of left me a little underwhelmed. I'm not gonna lie. Well, they didn't have a whole lot to do beyond crow like and sing Easy Street. That's about all they had to do. Yeah, they aren't exactly the most well developed characters, which is more an issue with the source material than it is the film itself. I've got a problem with Aileen Quinn. I've I got know a problem with our lead actress. I've got a problem with the fact that she was outacted by some of the other orphans. I disagree. I don't think she's the best choice, and I think she pales in comparison to like Kuvenzene Wallace as um as Annie, Annie in 2014 edition. I like frankly, I think she's the most charismatic edition of Annie that I've ever seen on film. This is a Kuvenzene Wallace you're talking about. Yes. Okay. And poor Albert Finney. All he has to do in this movie is shout and be unpleasant. It's true. <laughs> like, frankly, I got a little annoyed by him after a while. I, he's such a boring Daddy Warbucks. Uh, it's, uh, I was, he can't I was, even sing to boot. Like, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to sing, like, awesome. You just have to sing okay. He does all right. I mean, he's not, he's not one to do show-stopping numbers. He, he can carry a tune, you know? Most of the singers in this movie can just sing, like, all right. That's the thing that kind of bothered <laughs> me about it. And, like, Burn. I'm okay with that kind of that kind of concept of, like, okay singers when it's a movie that like, acknowledges that it should be okay singers. Like, take, for instance, Everyone Says I Love You okay. uh, by Woody Allen, which, like, is just a musical where, you know, normal people, like, very average, average people are singing. 
except for like Goldie Hawn, who actually had to like bring down her voice from her usual majesticness to, <laughs> to fit in with everyone else in the movie. So like that movie, I can understand the reasoning behind like plain voices, but this so one, that, it seemed a little off. So that movie's like, uh, I'm typing shit into my computer. My desktop's know. dirty. It's not, but like if you ever watch it, which you absolutely should because it's one of my favorite Woody Allen movies, uh, which like doesn't doesn't say much because I fucking love a lot of his movies, admittedly, as much as I don't care for him as a person. Uh, <laughs> I wanted a little more, but that's just because I always expect a little more from singing and musicals. Can we talk about the Bolshevik scene? Go ahead. Have fun. I want to talk about the Bolshevik scene. <laughs> There's a scene in this movie, if you're not convinced already that this is just, you know, old-fashioned American propaganda at work. Derek is very much stuck on this fact, by the way. How can you How can you not? Seriously. <laughs> I've got another example after that I haven't gotten to yet. Let me, talk about the, let me talk about the Bolshevik scene. There's a scene where we have uh, Daddy Warbucks, we have Annie, and we have Grace. They're in, like, a den or an office of some kind, and Albert Finney is... Uh, he's dictating yeah. a letter. He is lending money to, I'm not sure to whom, but for the purpose of buying the jet bombers that he makes. Okay, hold on to that. <laughs> While this is going on, there is like a thief or or someone breaking into the house through the balcony. Like the uh, the dog sees and no one like reacts and ha ha ha. The dog sees a thing that no one else sees and the dog goes and sort of pulls him over the edge. No no no. What happens first there is that he chucks like a cartoon bomb, like he chucks like a bob bomb <laughs> at inside the house that uh, the character of Punjab, played by a Tony Award winner Jeffrey Holder, chucks. Which, back. like, we'll talk about just how racist his entire racist. existence is in he a minute. The, he takes the bob bomb and he chucks it out the house and it blows up. And then the dog grabs the thief. And Punjab grabs the thief and he's singing like I think like a worker like a worker's song, like a protest song of some kind. And all the while Albert Finney is just dictating his letter and he's completely oblivious to the dude who just tried to like explode his house. And Grace takes Annie aside and Annie's like, Was someone trying to kill Daddy Warbucks? And she's like, He was a Bolshevik. He's the proof that the American system works because <laughs> they're jealous of what we have. And I'm like, Holy shit, this movie just pulled uh They Hate Our Freedom on us. They absolutely did. This is a musical. <laughs> There's a child in the cast. Come on. Uh, I will say, like, Albert Annie is Finney, like... Albert, <laughs> Albert Finney literally says at one point, I love money, I love power, I love capitalism. I never have and never will love children. And I'm like, fuck <laughs> me. By the way, like, none of these politics are, like, even remotely addressed in the 2014 version, which is why I was kind of honestly really shocked at the fact that they were in here, because I haven't seen this film in, like, at least over a decade. Oh, my God. But, (laughs) like... Can I talk about the FDR scene now? Okay, wait, wait, wait. I want to introduce the FDR scene. So, So there's this one scene where Annie, FDR, Eleanor... And and Daddy Warbucks are sitting in the White House, just kind of like casually having an argumentative lunch with 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 each other about and the New Deal. Oliver Warbucks about the New is Deal like, is like, man, fuck the fuck the New Deal. And FDR is like, ah, you rascal. And <laughs> FDR is played by the late great Edward Herman. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Uh, 
fantastic actor who I most knew because of Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls, right. And Richie yeah. Rich. <laughs> yes, Richie Rich, which Derek kindly reminded me of as I had completely forgotten yesterday. You know what? I barely recognized Edward Herman in this film because he didn't have any jowls. I know. He's so young. So young in that goddamn movie, man. So, yeah, they, they're talking in the White House. They're mm-hmm. having lunch. <laughs> you want, you want, and there's you want, a picture. Yeah. There's a picture of George Washington, like there's very a, prominently featured in the room. There's a portrait of George Washington, and they sing to it. <laughs> they sing to it. They sing tomorrow to a portrait of George Washington they at the sing White tomorrow House. Tomorrow to it. This is the first time tomorrow appears in the film, not including the opening credits. Oh and it's God. quite literally like it starts off with Annie singing tomorrow, then it slowly FDR just kind of joins in and starts singing himself. And then he forces everyone else to sing tomorrow to a portrait of George Washington. And, you and know it's how this kind of hilarious. Ends. You know how the scene ends, Juan. How the, does the scene end, Derek? The scene ends with everyone turning their face towards the camera. And they, 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 they are arranged so that the portrait of George Washington is framed with them. <laughs> Stick out your chin and grin. The poor people suffering from the Great Depression. Tomorrow's only a day away. Stave off your hunger. God. I don't want to call Annie a fascistic film, but I kind of want to call Annie a fascistic film. (laughs) Your bitterness is just like, is so beautiful. I can't stand that G. Willikers young Republican bullshit. I can't. I can't. G. Willikers, there's poor folks in the world. (laughs) Oh, man. Don't even joke about that shit. I mean, that's like essentially what it's no, a thing I mean, that happens in the movie, more or less. Yeah, basically, because, oh man, just the divide between rich and poor in this movie is insane. Oh man. Oh god. Speaking of that number, it is one of the few, few musical numbers I actually think is like very necessary to the film because there are a lot of musical numbers in Annie the musical and the film that are like quite frankly just completely fucking useless and worthless and terrible dumb dog you can cut that out you still have one song about the dog that's plenty (laughs) about the dog who cares about it's the dog has a name yeah but the name of the song is dumb dog so I know, but you should refer to the dog by its name, which is Sandy. That's right, Sandy. It would be really amusing if we just never referred to the dog by its name, even after I mentioned that (laughs) that we should refer to it by its name. Oh, that'd be weird. You can get rid of... We got Annie. It's completely useless. Absolutely. You Okay, the the core songs that you need. You need Maybe, you need uh, Tomorrow, you need I Think I'm Gonna Like It Here. That's it. I think I'm gonna like it here. So, so no, you no, never fully dressed without a smile. Yeah, I that think that actually was pretty cool. I like that's the thing with that uh, the radio show portion of it. Awesome. I really liked the sort of way they had the fully effects dude. They were on the carpet. They made a big deal of the fact that they were on carpet so they wouldn't make any sound. Uh, it was probably Albert Finney's best performance of the film. Just completely Absolutely. misreading the scripts. It's a really great comic scene. The reprise right after. Not Don't that need great. It. Cut it. Don't need it. Uh, totally unnecessary, which is one of the things I think the 2014 version really does well, which is like cut out just plain unnecessary songs. Um, Little Girls is also a fantastic addition to the film, so, in my opinion. 2014's version makes it a lot different, but um, I, I still really enjoy the way Cameron Diaz depicts it, but I love Cameron fucking Diaz. Uh, Easy Street. 
Yes, Easy Street, I think, is essential to the film. Yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, see, there's there's more to it than you, you want to admit. Well, the core trifecta is like, if you had if you had half an hour to make an Annie, an adaptation of Annie, those are the three you need. I guess. I, I mean, I feel like Easy Street is a very, very necessary song to the plot of Annie. Yeah, yeah, okay. You that's, know what, yeah, dude? I'm, I... thinking, I'm thinking about this. I might actually like the Rob Marshall version better. <laughs> oh, my God. Derek, just admit that he likes his worst enemy, Rob Marshall's film, better Rob than Marshall this. Is, Rob Marshall is my enemy, but I will – You know, I got to give credit where credit is due. The movie version was half an hour shorter than this one. Choreography was better. It was tighter. Um, it looked cheaper, which is thematically appropriate, I feel, for Annie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the dudes won a million awards for a choreography or reason. I still hate Chicago, though. Sorry, sorry, fans of Rob Marshall. You're the only fucking. That's literally the only other movie of his you've seen. You're not allowed to hate Rob Marshall off one movie, and I still stand by that. I can hate him if the one movie is Chicago. Oh my god, whatever. Okay, we're not gonna argue about Chicago today because that would be a. <laughs> it has long, a better. It, it, it has a fresh rating, probably. It does have a fresh rating. Sorry and we're not going to discuss Chicago because <laughs> we're not discussing Rob Marshall today. No, we're if you want to shit on Rob Marshall, at least shit on like a worse film, which is Nine. But I, you know, I haven't seen Nine. Don't watch Nine. You're gonna fucking. You're gonna despise it. If I don't like it, you're gonna hate it. I don't think it's a terrible movie. I think it's a terrible musical adaptation on like every level. But yeah, I remember. Um, I don't remember much from the '99 Rob Marshall TV Annie, but I do remember it being pretty well choreographed because he's that's what a good choreographer. Because that's, that's what, what the does. dude does best. Yeah, exactly. You want to talk um, about Punjab? Oh, Punjab. Yeah. Um, Punjab is black in this movie. Punjab is a black man playing in a, a, an Indian man who like has magical powers, I guess. He's also a bodyguard. I don't, I don't, I don't fucking know. He dances really magnificently because he's a Tony Award winner. He charms um, people. He's like a healer. He charms people and dogs. And yes, he can magically heal knees like, by like touching fractured them. legs or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fucking, fucking Annie karates at Albert Finney in the leg and has to get a, an Indian healer to help him out. Jesus Christ, this movie. Out of, like, sheer convenience, frankly. But, um... And, like, considering, like, people got, like, really fucking offended that, like, oh, this classic film is is being butchered by, like, Annie being black in the 2014 version and Daddy Warbucks being black and everybody being black, but, like... Listen, you need to you need to rewatch the bullshit that, that this movie pulls with Punjab because that character got dropped on his ass like completely non-existent in 2014, Annie, which God bless him. There is no way they couldn't have found at least one dude from the Indian subcontinent to play a dude called Punjab. In the 1980s, Derek, what are you talking about? Oh, my God. What um, are you talking about? Can I talk about the asp real quick? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. He's the other guy, one of Daddy Warbucks's other um, servants, uh, man I servants. guess bodyguards, whatever. Uh, is he the chauffeur? No, Punjab is the chauffeur. The other guy's the bodyguard, or is it the other way around? Doesn't matter. I don't. I don't really care. The honestly. asp. The asp is sort of supposed to be a generalized East Asian person. I looked it up. The dude is Japanese American, and of course, and of course, dude, fuck it. What he does in the movie, he. Fucking karate's a Bolshevik. Yes. <laughs> That's one. Two, he teaches Annie karate. And three, he does 
a racist dance to the sound of chopsticks. Yeah, and I feel like I should mention that like Punjab's every appearance is accompanied by like 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 a like flute, flute, like pan-Asian flute. Like <laughs> They should have gotten the whole nine. They should have gotten like sitar, fucking the whole oh the whole God. just make it super racist instead of just a little racist. I mean, they could have. It was the 80s. They could do whatever they want and no one would call them out on it. Nowadays though, we're here. We're, we're here. <laughs> 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 oh man, this movie, dude! Holy crap! So, kind of, so. <laughs> there's a couple. There's actually a couple of stray thoughts here that I want to address. I don't really have anything to do with a theme or performance or anything. Mm-hmm. One, there was a reference to a tennis player named Don Budge. It was an American tennis I, player. I would One, never have noticed that. During yeah, I think I'm gonna like it here. Uh, there's a lyric that goes uh, that um, you know something about tennis. And oh, then, because she wants to – we have tennis coaches available and yeah, yeah. yeah. She says, I never picked up a racket. And then Grace says, get Don Budge on the phone. And I'm like, Don Budge. And I looked it up and yeah, he was a tennis player, an American tennis player, rose to prominence in the late 30s. He was the first American to win the Grand Slam, which is the four major tournaments in one calendar year. Mm-hmm. This poses a problem with me. Because this, it was in the late 30s and not in the early – Exactly. Yeah. They could have gotten some other. You're nitpicky as shit today. I ju- I ju- no, I just picked. No, well, the the weird politics of it. That's not nitpicking. That's just slathered all over the film. No, I understand. This is just interesting because I mean the movie can exist in like a fantasy 1930s, but this is clearly set in 33. Don Budge hasn't won shit yet. Okay. But I, I, I on the one no on the one hand I was like cool they made a, a contemporary reference to this tennis player, but it doesn't make any sense given the chronology of the film. That's my that's my thing. Okay. Two, after let's go to the movies. Mm-hmm. There is a major, major, major spoiler for George Cukor's Camille. Yes, there actually is, which is like really fucked up, honestly, because like. First of all, you can cut that out of the movie. Yes, absolutely. They should have. They should have just like shown the title card, and that's about it. And then you know, the, it like, would have been a nice little end. nod to classic cinema and move along. Yes, instead they spoil the goddamn movie. Can you believe that? They spoiled Camille. Which is terrible. Like, <laughs> it, no one should ever spoil a movie within another movie unless it's like, you know, uh, Luke, I am your fucking Yeah, father. unless it's like Star Wars or something, you know? Or Sixth Sense. Or something like, something general pop, like, pop culture has spoiled. But not not Camille, not George Cougar's Camille. Like, how fucking unnecessary is that? It's pretty unnecessary. Uh, I actually have. And again, a... maybe Camille was the Star Wars of 1982. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that like, absolutely Empire, wasn't. <laughs> or I'm pretty sure like Empire or Return of the Jedi. No, Return of the Jedi hadn't come out at that point, right? Jedi is 83, right? Listen, I'm not gonna claim to know what year <laughs> Return of the Jedi came out. To be honest. Yeah, 83. I was right. Yep, you're right. Uh, I actually have a part of my notes here that's written, I'm going to fart all over this movie's political allegory. <laughs> oh my god, you're so bitter. I, I love it. I did I love not it. like this movie. I, I cannot like wait. Movie, I cannot man. wait until a month from now, which it will remain a secret for at the moment. But um, Yeah, we planned these a bit ahead, so... Yes, we do. But um, I, I guess I want to like mention. I actually really enjoyed something about like 
just how self-sufficient Annie was depicted as in the first act of the movie, which you don't get a lot of in, in the, the more modern version of the film. Like, yes, you see her like go out and do her own thing and like try to figure out her own parents and like find out her history and stuff. But like Annie was literally like kicking ass in this version of the movie outside of like karate chopping Albert Finney. She was like quite literally punching some fucking kids in a back alley to save a dog and there's a just a very clear presence of her own self-sufficiency even though she isn't quite as charismatic as she should be considering she's the star of the movie i want to point out one practical stunt before we get to ratings okay Uh, there is one at one point in the film uh during the part where rooster hannigan and uh lily are scheming uh there's a kid there's a, the youngest orphan is cleaning bathrooms under the supervision of an older orphan, and she gets she gets <laughs> I know she, exactly what you're gonna talk she gets, about. She gets annoyed, and the older orphan goes, "Now clean the other one," because there's a second uh, toilet in the stall or in the bathroom, mm-hmm. and she kind of looks at the stall, looks at her mop, and then whaps the older kid really hard on the face with the mop, and I'm like, "Holy crap! They didn't cut." Or anything that that kid not got hit a single cut. She just sort of got hit in the face with a mop and fell backwards. Which like that older girl was a great. I liked her a lot in the movie, frankly. Yeah, a lot of those orphans were really good. It's a shame that Annie wasn't uh, up to the task. Yeah, your favorite was the little girl who hit her with the mop. My favorite was the one who got hit with the mop. Actually, that's it's an interesting set of choices compared yeah. to you know little orphan Annie. <laughs> so Juan, are you pro Annie or anti Annie? Uh, see, like, this is one of those cases I kind of wish I was just like, okay, like, I'm very comfortable with the 50% rating. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I would lean towards rotten just, uh, just because, like, oh, I don't want to lean towards rotten, but I kind of do. There's just a lot of really cool individual parts, but, like, it's, it's a movie that does not need to be two hours long. It just, oh, most definitely not. It's just, it's not that great of a musical. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, what, Juan, you're crazy. But I'd rather watch 2014 Annie again. I will give this movie a rotten as well. I did not like it. I did not care for its war machine politics. I did not care for the weird way that John Huston shoots a musical. He's really good at two-handers, and he's really good at chase sequences. Not so much at filming people dancing. I still disagree on that front. I think there's enough, like, very well-shot musical numbers to... It's, it's pretty perfunctory. I mean, it's pretty... It's certainly a lot better than what Will Gluck did. Like, that much I will say. Are you are you going on record uh, uh, saying that Will Gluck is a worse director than John Huston? No shit. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's like, I mean, that's a clear, clear fact. I, I feel like no one would challenge that considering Wilgluck's like, what, Easy A, Friends with Benefits, and Maltese Annie. Falcon, Fat City. Yeah, I, I think, I think I'm, I'm pretty comfortable making that statement. That All right. Bold a statement. <laughs> All right. So two rottens, we agree again. Oh my God. Look the streak stays alive. I'm so proud of us. So should we move on to to a couple of recommendations? Let's. Let's do yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to start or should I? I'm going to go first. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to recommend another movie with Albert Finney in it, a better movie with Albert Finney in it where he doesn't just yell. Uh, I'm going to recommend Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, a 1960 film from the new British cinema movement directed by Carol Rice. It's about a young man 
living a drab life in a factory town, uh, how he goes out at night, makes mistakes, and lives a drab life. It's an awesome film. I've never seen it. It's really so good. So I should it's probably in, check it out sometime in the near it's future. In, it's in the same uh, 60s British tradition as uh, If and um, shit. What's the one? What's the one with the long distance running there? Loneliness. It's a fire. No, not chariots of fire. <laughs> I just, I literally thought like 80s and running, and that was the first film that popped into my I'm mind. Talking not about long distance running. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm talking about the 1960s. I know, but. <laughs> yeah, uh, chariots of fire, known for its kitchen sink realism <laughs> and oh, pathos. Most certainly. <laughs> it's the loneliness of the long distance runner. It's a movie from I... 1962. I've never seen it or heard of it, frankly. And it's not. I'll be honest. People tend to call it the British New Wave. At least I do. The proper term is free cinema. Uh, Carol Rice, Lindsay Anderson, and all those dudes. So Saturday night and Sunday morning, check that shit out. Juan, what are you uh, recommending? Before we, I even saw Annie. Uh, we were talking about like uh, I guess Great Depression period movies with uh, Bernadette Peters, and um, how many of those are there? There's at least one other. I know, right? Just one other. Which much better musical numbers are featured. It's like beautifully directed, beautifully made. It's just what's it Steve called, brother? Martin and Bernadette Peters and Jessica Harper are all awesome in it. And it is called Pennies from Heaven. Which I like. I don't know. Like I can't imagine anyone watching this movie and not enjoying it. It's just really, really, like really beautiful musical. With like, it's a jukebox musical as well, or not as well, rather, because Annie isn't one. I feel like I mentioned jukebox musical at some point in the night. Uh, whatever. Anyway, but yeah, uh, Pennies from Heaven is about like a sheet music salesman in the Great Depression who's trying to sort of like escape his terrible, terrible life, and he has an affair with like a school teacher. It's very, very exciting. Really big musical number sometimes. Really, really, really great choreography. Um, some of it's in black and white. Some of it's in color. All right, Juan, so far we've done a fantasy film, we've done a musical, now it's time that we venture into the realm of science fiction. The movie yeah. we're going to watch in two weeks is Richard Stanley's Hardware, released in 1990. I really wish we could like, like, <laughs> like show, the, show the poster for this fucking movie. Google it, man. Hardware 1990. Take a look at that shit. It's going to be Google great. Google the poster and like cry for my poor, poor soul and tell me – like I mean the only redeeming factor of this is it has like Iggy Pop in it. Iggy Pop's in it. That's about all I can see that this could be not terrible. I feel like the <laughs> – this is – I mean like can I just can I just read the synopsis? I, feel <laughs> I mean people could read that on their own but – All right. Google, do- Google the synopsis. So if you're – if you like the podcast, hopefully if you've made it this far into it, you do like it. And you're interested in what else we do, uh, our main home on the internet as a duo is www.dimthehouselights.com. There you'll find some film criticism that me and Juan write. We're critics. We also feature writing from other critics. Uh, most notably at the moment is Michelle Arf, who is a is fantastic correct. writer. Are you uh, somewhere else on the internet? Maybe perhaps Twitter? I am both on the Miami New Times' site as a freelancer, and I do most of my interviews and lists, I guess, over there. And on Twitter, I am at Woahitswanito, W-O-A-H-I-T-S-J-U-A-N-I-T-O. I'm on Twitter as well, at Derek underscore G. You can find some of my writing over at Sound on Sight. And uh, we're both on Letterboxd. 
I'm at Derek G. He's at Woe's Juanito. Uh, Woe, it's Juanito there as well. Yep, I'm very, very consistent. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's it. I think we're done. Yes, we are. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you, see in, you two in two weeks. weeks. Yeah.